All right, we are continuing together our study in uh, chapter 30 of our Confession of Faith on the subject of the Lord's Supper. And we are dealing with the institution of the Lord's Supper in paragraph 1. And um, there are three things in paragraph 1 that we want to observe. Uh, First of all, the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. When and how and where did it begin? And we've been talking about that. And then secondly, the observation of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Where is it to be observed and how long is it to be observed? And then finally, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Why do we do this? What purpose does it accomplish in our lives? So what I want to do is read paragraph one, and then uh, we're going to proceed through uh, the paragraph together. Uh, We've spent some time talking about um, uh, the terms that are used for the Lord's Supper and then last week we talked about the, um, the uh, fact that the Lord's Supper is rooted in the Passover and uh, is a fulfillment of that and a transformation of that. Um, and so let's read together the paragraph then and we'll, we'll proceed uh, through it. It says, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by Him the same night wherein He was betrayed to be observed in His churches unto the end of the world, for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So let's talk then about the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. And what I want to do is just look at the four passages that declare uh, who inaugurated it and when it was inaugurated. Okay, so let's just go through uh, the Gospels first of all. And we'll look first of all at Matthew chapter 26, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. And we're just going to read the four relevant passages together. In Matthew chapter 26, um, beginning um, at verse uh, 20, they made ready the Passover, verse 19. Uh, And we talked about the Passover and how the Lord's Supper evolved out of that last time. It says in verse 20, Now when the evening was come, Jesus sat down with the twelve, and they did eat, and he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth, as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it unto them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins." But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount 
of Olives. So there we have the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. We have the author of it, the Lord Jesus, and we have the time of it uh, just before his crucifixion uh, at the end of his public ministry here on earth. Let's turn then to Mark chapter 14, and we'll read the parallel passage. Mark chapter 14, and we'll look at verses 17 through 22. Mark chapter 14, verses 17 to 22. And in the evening, Jesus comes with the twelve. Notice verse 16, they, they had made ready the Passover. Verse 18, and as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth me, with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, it is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth, it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink it no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And so we see that Mark's statement of the Lord's Supper is very parallel to Matthew's. Now notice, if you will, the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, we're going to read together verses 19 through 23. Um, it says in, in verse 19, it says, And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. They begin to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Now, you'll notice here that the order is reversed. We have the Lord's Supper being celebrated, and then afterward we have this discussion about um, Judas Iscariot and his betrayal. Whereas in Matthew and Mark, we have the discussion about Judas and the betrayal, and then the Lord's Supper. Now, what this reveals to us is that um, there's a difference in the way in which the synoptic authors do their chronology. And it's widely understood and widely recognized that the Gospel of Luke is not written in a chronological fashion uh, with any degree of strictness. What Luke will do is he will take a thread and he'll run with it and carry it through and then he'll go back and grab another thread and he'll run with it and carry it through. But um, he doesn't necessarily put those things in order. Okay? 
Um, you see this happening in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2, okay? Where Moses takes the creation account and he goes through and he carries it all the way through to uh, Adam and Eve and um, the whole seventh day and everything, right? And then in chapter 2, he goes back and he then fills in a lot of details and adds a bunch of stuff to the point that people think, there's two separate, distinct creation narratives. But this is very common in, uh, in, in uh, Middle Eastern literature in which um, the authors oftentimes do not pay so much attention to chronology as they do to uh, carrying out a storyline and getting the idea of cross and then going back later and filling in some of the details. And that's what Luke is doing, okay? So if you want to get the issue of chronology down, pay attention to Matthew, pay attention to Mark. Uh, they're much more strict with the issue of chronology. Luke uh, is much more about conveying ideas than he is about getting chronology down. Now, I want us to turn to the Gospel of John. Even though the Gospel of John never mentions the Lord's Supper, I want us to turn to it, okay? And, and, and help you understand uh, why it's really important not to follow Luke's chronology. Okay? In John chapter 13, we have in the opening verses the story of the foot washing. Okay? Now, the foot washing was never mentioned in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. All right? And one of the reasons why John wrote his gospel was to go back and fill in and add material that is not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, so the, the, the first three are called synoptic gospels because their storylines and the things they include are very parallel. But John then goes and includes a bunch of material that none of those three include for the purpose of filling in some of the gaps. Now, notice after the foot washing, in, which concludes in verse 17 of John 13, it says in verse 18, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but he, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now he's talking about Judas, all right? Now I tell you before it come, that when it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily I say unto you, he that receives whomsoever I send receives me. He that receives me receives him that send me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who um, it should be of whom he spoke. And he, lying on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spoke this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that is, the bag of money, the savings account of the uh, apostles, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. So what's happened to Judas now? He, he's gone. He's left the upper room. He's left the disciples. He's gone. 
And then it says in verse 31, Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And he gives this little discourse, all right? And that's when he says, I'm going away. And Peter says, Lord, you know, I'll go with you. I'll even die for you. And Jesus says, Oh, really? You will. I think actually you're going to betray me tonight before the cock crows three times, okay? And that ends verse 38, okay? And then between chapter 13 and chapter 14, apparently that's when the Lord's Supper was observed. And all of the synoptic writers, the Harmony of the Gospel guys, all agree that's when it happened. But it's not recorded. Now, the point is, is that you see in Matthew, and you see in Mark, this interaction with Judas, and then the Lord's Supper. And obviously, based on what John says, as soon as this interaction with Judas took place, he immediately went out. And so even though Matthew and Mark don't record the going out of Judas, John makes it clear that as soon as Judas was identified by the sop, he left, and then Matthew and Mark say the Lord's Supper was celebrated. Okay? So, even though Luke makes it appear that the Lord's Supper was celebrated and then there was this discussion about Judas and him betraying them, implying that Judas was at the Lord's Supper. We see that that wasn't the case. Uh, John makes it clear that as soon as the SOP issue was discussed and it was given to Judas, he left. Now, why am I making a big deal out of this? Reason why is important for us to understand Judas wasn't there when the Lord's Supper was instituted. And the reason why is because that's when Jesus declared and inaugurated the new covenant. And the new covenant is made exclusively with saved people. There are no unsaved people included in that covenant. And since Judas was clearly unsaved, it says in John 17, he was the son of perdition. Um, then, then clearly he couldn't have been there when the Lord's Supper was observed and when it was, when it was instituted, when it was inaugurated, because Jesus said, this is the new covenant. And so as they all partook of the symbol of the new covenant, which is the Lord's Supper, okay, that's the token of the, of the new covenant. Each covenant has a token. What was the token of the Noahic covenant? Rainbow. The rainbow. Good. And what was the token of the Abrahamic covenant? It was circumcision. That's exactly right. Okay. And the token of the new covenant is the Lord's Supper. Okay. Calvin. What was that covenant where he blessed the Abrahamic That was the Abrahamic covenant. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, I preached a whole sermon on that. If you want to know what the significance of the dividing of the animals was and, and God going through them alone as a smoking lamp. A very interesting passage. Um, and uh, encourage you to listen to that sermon if you're not perfectly clear what that was about. Don't have time to go into it right now. So, my point is, when we're talking about the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, the author of it and the time of it, that uh, it was on, on the night before he was betrayed, at the end of his public ministry, Judas had been dismissed, and um, then the a token of the new covenant was established and implemented. Okay, and um, that's the reason why, for example, the Lord's Supper is only to be received by those who are saved. 
And that's why if a person hasn't made a public profession of faith and, um, and, and sealed that profession in, in baptism, then they are not to partake of, of the Lord's Supper. And of course, Judas was not saved, and that's why he was excluded. Okay, any questions about that chronology or why Luke puts things in, in apparently reverse order? Okay, is that all clear? Good. Because that's really an important point to understand. Judas wasn't there. Okay? Because if he was there, it destroys the significance of the new covenant. And, and it also um, would overthrow the idea that the Lord's Supper is only to be served to save people. That's why we don't practice infant communion. We don't serve communion to infants any more than we baptize infants. Okay? Because participation is a declaration that you are a participant in the new covenant because you're partaking of the token of the new covenant. Um, and so uh, um, those who are not participants shouldn't partake in the ceremony. All right, now the last passage we want to look at is in 1 Corinthians 11. So let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read together... Um, Beginning of verse 20. Well, no, we won't start there. We'll start at verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. So where did Paul get this? Was Paul in the upper room? He wasn't, was he? So how does he know what happened there? Well, Jesus personally, directly revealed it to him. Now, the question is, when did Jesus do that? I don't know for sure, but uh, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus appeared to Paul on several occasions after Paul's conversion, okay? Um, you remember um, various times when uh, he was at, at Corinth, um, when he was on the ship. Um, there is... Um, the belief that uh, during when the three years when he was in Arabia, that the whole three years Christ was with him and discipling him. So we don't know when Jesus told him this, but Jesus obviously did because he says, I received it from the Lord. So it's not like Paul is just repeating what Matthew, Mark, and Luke said. Um, he's, uh, he got this directly from the mouth of the Lord himself. All right, He says, I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes." So we see that Paul's account is the same as Matthew and Mark's and Luke's. And it's simply the fact that the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. So this then is the inauguration of this um, ordinance, this um, uh, observation of the Lord's Supper. We saw last time the background to that, and now we see the actual implementation of it. All right, are there any questions at this point in time? 
Okay, all right, let's move on then. Having seen the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, notice its observation, its observation. Now, it says in our confession, it is to be observed, and now we see the place of the observation in his churches, and then we see the time of the observation unto the end of the world. Okay, so where is the Lord's Supper to be observed? In his church. How long are we to observe it? Until the end of the world. So that then is the um, place and the time. Now, when we look at the, the New Testament record of uh, the Lord's Supper, um, we see that every time it's recorded, every time it's recorded, the Lord's Supper is observed. It's always observed in the church when the church is gathered together as a body for its uh, stated worship. So the place of observation in the church, let's look at each instance in the Bible where the Lord's Supper is observed and just see in what context was it done. All right, first Acts chapter 2, book of Acts chapter 2. And... uh, Peter's preached his Pentecost Day sermon, and um, in verse 41, notice uh, the participants and the place of the Lord's Supper. It says, then they that gladly received, Acts 2.41, then they that gladly received his word, that is Peter's preaching of the gospel, were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So these people believed and they were saved, and then they were baptized, and then they were added to the church. Okay, that's the sequence of events. Now notice their activity, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And so we see here this mention of the breaking of bread. That's obviously a reference to the Lord's Supper because we talked about uh, the fact that on the night he was, which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body. So when we see here that these people are saved, baptized, congregated together, in the context of that being congregated together, they are uh, learning the apostles' doctrine, just like you guys are doing right now. You know, you're hearing the apostles' doctrine and uh, fellowship. Okay, we fellowship with each other and share what Christ is doing in our life. And uh, the breaking of bread, um, which is the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. And those prayers are the corporate prayers of the church together, like we do in Sunday morning worship and also on Wednesday night. Okay, so it's as the church is, is gathered together, as the church doing the functions of the church, in that context, there is um, the breaking of the bread. And so it says in verse 46, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, the reason why it was done from house to house is not because the Lord's Supper is a private ordinance to be um, observed in individual homes in the midst of of a single family, but because when you have 3,000 people saved and no church building, where do you meet? Well, they met in various homes as subgroups or uh, maybe individual churches. Um, It would be very difficult and unwieldy to handle 3,000 people in one place. I suppose they could do some open-air preaching. 
But basically what happened is the saints, uh, you remember there were 140 in the upper room um, that were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit for 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost. Well, those people apparently were residents of Jerusalem and they had homes there. And you remember Barnabas had some land and he sold it. So obviously there was some property ownership. And these are the homes that these people were meeting in. And so uh, we've done that. We've had church in somebody's home when our congregation was small like this before we had a building. And so it wasn't that it was something that was done in a family. It was just done in an individual home. for example, you remember when Cornelius got saved, he called all of his friends together and they were in his house and Peter came and preached and the Holy Spirit fell and, and they had a baptism. So that, that it was a house church, but not um, what nowadays is commonly called a home church, which is just a church of a father, his wife, and his children, and they call that a church, and it's not a church. Um, all right. Um, So that was the first example of where and how the Lord's Supper was celebrated. Then uh, Acts chapter 20 is the next um, recorded event. This is um, very clear by this time. The church has developed and uh, it is now meeting not every day like it was immediately after uh, the day of Pentecost. Um, it's now meeting uh, on the Lord's Day once a week on Sunday. And we'll start reading at Acts 20 and verse 6, where it says, And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. Now notice verse 7, And upon the first day of the week, now the first day of the week is Sunday. We're meeting right now on the first day of the week because Saturday used to be the last day of the week, all right? And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. When did the disciples break bread? When they came together on the first day of the week. That's when it happened, okay? Paul preached to them ready to depart on the morrow and continued his speech until uh, midnight. And... um, So anyway, it goes on to uh, talk about Eutychus falling out of the window and Paul resurrecting him from the dead. Now, verse 11, it says, And when he was therefore come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed and they brought the young man alive, etc. So here is a very clear statement that the Lord's Supper was celebrated on uh, Sunday the first day of the week when the church gathered together as the church to carry out um, its functions. And then, of course, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's turn there, please. We were there a little earlier. Uh, There's a lot in this 1 Corinthians 11 passage. We're going to be coming to it many times and picking out various strands of uh, truth that it contains. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning at verse 17. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. Paul says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together. Now there's the operative phrase, coming together. That you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now he's going to chew him out. Okay? And he's going to chew them out for their improper behavior when they gather together as the church. Notice verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, 
I hear there be divisions among you and I partly believe it. So this business of coming together, verse 17, is the idea of gathering together for the stated meetings of the church. And uh, it's, it's, it's very clear this isn't just you know, people out there somewhere. These are people gathered in the church. Verse 19, For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And the word therefore heresies is the word for divisions. All right? When you come together, there's our phrase again, come together, therefore, into one place, it is impossible to eat the Lord's Supper. He says it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You're not eating, whatever you're doing, that stuff you're putting in your mouth and the, the things you're consuming, that isn't the Lord's Supper. And of course, the reason why it wasn't the Lord's Supper is because they were celebrating the Lord's Supper as an ordinary meal of nutrition. And they were celebrating it in a very selfish way where people weren't sharing. And as a result, what he's saying is it's impossible to celebrate the Lord's Supper, his selfless sacrifice, in the selfish way in which you guys are, are conducting yourselves. Verse 21, for in eating, everyone takes before another his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is uh, drunken or satiated. What have you not houses to eat and drink in? Obviously, okay, he's talking about something different than a family being in a home together, engaging in their normal activities at home. He says, you can do that stuff at home. Now, apparently, when they were coming together at the church at this point in time, they had some kind of a building. And they were leaving their homes, and they were coming to church. So by this time, Corinth wasn't in a home church. They had their own building, apparently, of some kind. He says, or despise you the church of God. Notice the phrase again, the church of God, and shame them that have not. What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I received of the Lord Jesus, which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. So obviously, these people are coming together in the church of God, and it's in the context of the church that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, not when they're in their homes. So um, I, I think it's, it's clearly established in, in all three of the passages in which the place of the celebration of the Lord's Supper is identified. In each case, it's when the church is gathered as the church to carry out the functions of the church of preaching and prayer and fellowship that in that context, the Lord's Supper is celebrated. And so what this means is that you don't celebrate the Lord's Supper on a camp out. You don't celebrate the Lord's Supper in your home. You don't go do it in a rest home. The Lord's Supper is to be celebrated in the church when the church gathers together to function as the church in its stated meetings. I remember when I was um, uh, new in the faith that the pastor used to take this little communion set and he would go around to the rest homes to the people who uh, couldn't attend church because of physical infirmity and he would serve them the Lord's Supper right there. And uh, I participated in that. Uh, but it seems quite clear that this is a church ordinance, not a private ordinance. It'd be fine for him to go to those people and read the scripture with them and pray with them, which are things that you would do in fellowship with them. Uh, but to bring the ordinances there um, was, uh, was out of harmony with the precedent and the example of scripture. Now, as we go on, we're going to see why the, the, the Lord's Supper is to be confined 
to the church. Because when you look at the significance of it, you realize that the significance of it demands that it be exercised in the context of the church and not just any old place with any old group of Christians who might happen to get together. Okay, So we'll see that as we proceed through uh, the remainder of the paragraph. So the place of observation is in the church. Now, next time, we're out of time, we'll talk about the length of observation. How long are we supposed to do this? And our confession says very clearly, unto the end of the world. Um, and after that, it's going to stop. But it must go on until then. And once again, the significance of the meal tells us the duration of of the meal and its observation. All right, are there any questions? Okay. All right, well, um, this all might seem a little tedious, but we need to understand that <laughs> if you read the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, you see that, that the details regarding the worship of God and how it was to be carried out were much more tedious than this and much more complex and God is very particular about how he's worshipped, when he's worshipped, where he's worshipped, and with whom he's worshipped, okay? And so um, instead of saying, oh, you know, Pastor Wood, you get all wrapped up in these details for just, you know, uh, because God's wrapped up in the details. That's why. God is a God of detail, and he cares about the details, and we need to as well, just so that we're sure that we're doing his worship his way so that we have his blessing and so that we're promoting his glory in the way in which he's prescribed, because that's what it means to have God-centered worship. Instead of doing worship the way we think we should, or the way that pleases people, or the way that seems to be right. We've got to do it his way, okay? So that's what that's about. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this wonderful ordinance you've given to us, and Lord, for the directions you've supplied, both by way of commandment and also by the way of precedent. And Lord, we do pray that as we observe this ceremony uh, in the future, that we might do so increasingly with a self-conscious awareness that would elevate our understanding and the depth of our participation in this ordinance and also the degree to which you are pleased by the way in which we uh, conduct it. Father, we realize that your worship is not to just be done any old way, but it's to be done in precisely the way uh, in which you were prescribed. Lord, we thank you for the simplicity of new covenant worship. Uh, but Lord, even though it is simple, it is not simplistic, and it has great depth and uh, deep significance, profound meaning. And Lord, may we draw all of that out and understand it and use it uh, to give you glory as we participate in these things. Lord, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.